So welcome back, everybody. We are back for part three of our Out of Place podcast series with author Frank Schiffman. We are here today to read a short story called Burned. He wrote about his childhood upbringings in Morningside of Pittsburgh. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a different flavor from what we've been used to. And uh, Frank, take it away, my friend. Thank you, Zach. Yes, sir. The smell of smoke hung heavily in the evening autumn air. Standing 400 feet above the illuminated crime scene, I watched as firemen in slick yellow overcoats packed up their hoses. They could do nothing more. She was gone. The victim of an arson's match. Along with her passing, powerful childhood memories and a part of history were reduced to ash. An autopsy was unnecessary. The cause of death was obvious. Only a handful of family members would mourn her passing, absorbing the finality of it. Feelings of guilt consumed me. I couldn't remember the last time I had visited. Earlier in the day, my mother had called to tell me the bad news. Her voice quivering, she said, uh, I'm surprised it didn't happen before now. I'm sick to my stomach. I'll come home. No. Your father is down there now. Come over later. After hanging up with her, I sat motionless in my office, staring at the wall in front of me. This was followed by an irrational thought. As long as I didn't see the destruction, it wasn't real. Delaying my trip home became more palatable. Facing the carnage would mean accepting the progression of time and a loss that would create a permanent void. My first memory of interacting with her was not at all positive. I was six when my dad took me down with him to inspect our property at Briarcliff. After walking halfway down the hill behind our house, we abruptly turned onto a narrow path that led to a separate clearing. It was there that we came upon her. I instantly was uncomfortable. She was stout and weathered. What's more, she smelled old. Though she was incapable of saying a word, my dad interacted with her as though nothing was out of the ordinary. While he checked to make sure that all was well with her, I paced back and forth, wanting to go back up to our house. That night, I told my older brother Carl about my visit. His reaction was unexpected. She's been around forever, he said. I felt like you when I first saw her, but you'll see all the things that bug you now will disappear once you get to know her. Bet you'll want to go down the hill and hang out all the time, just like me. Carl was 10. He knew everything. So if he thought she was cool, then I would too. With the passing of time, my apprehensions about her melted away. She no longer was an oddity to me. Funny how familiarity with someone or something can change your opinion. Every winter, the hill at Briarcliff turned into a sled rider's dream. Carl would wax up the steel runners on our sleds, and we and our friends would careen down our private slope with reckless abandon for hours. When the sting of cold chilled our bones, we would trudge down the path for a chance to warm up by her pot-bellied stove. By this point, she was a very welcome sight. While the numbness receded from our skin, we recounted the fun we had just had, often discussing ways in which we would build bigger and better snow banks or jumps to make the downhill course even more challenging. In the spring, we opened her windows to drive out the stale, musty smell that filled the air within. 
The floors were swept and hinges oiled. Though she showed no outward signs of gratitude, we always knew that it was our responsibility for her upkeep. It was a duty that everyone in my family gladly assumed. We loved her. When my brother got a BB gun at 15, we raced down the hill to where she sat, let ourselves in, flung open the back windows, and began shooting at cans we had arranged on the stone wall 10 yards away. While we grew from childhood to adolescence and on to manhood, she remained a cherished constant in our lives. We cooked hamburgers, hot dogs, and roasted marshmallows on the barbecue pit we built in her front yard. We celebrated birthdays and graduations in her midst. She was a gift. She was special. Now she was no more. I desperately looked around. It was a fertile, futile act. The arsonist was gone. I felt helpless. Why did he destroy her? Was her murder premeditated or a spur-of-the-moment action? As I pondered these questions, puzzling thoughts occurred to me. Could her demise somehow be its own paradox? Was her very conception part of a bigger plan or born of whim? Only Bertolt Frosch, the first owner of Briarcliff Estate, could answer these questions. It was he who had settled her on this property spot where she remained for more than six decades. Frosch had passed away long ago. The answers would forever be buried with him. Now, as I bore witness to the destruction below, I could no longer escape reality. A withdrawal from my memory bank produced a vivid image of her. Suddenly, my faculties sparked to life. I could feel her bark exterior beneath my fingertips. I could hear the groan of the hinges as her plank wooden shutters extended to bright bring in bright light and fresh air. I could see her green roof, stucco chimney, and Dutch-style front door. The mildew-laden interior filled my nostrils. It was a smell that signified a change of seasons. No one would ever harm her again. She was beyond reach. Our little house, as my parents referred to her, had become a vibrant bookmark in my life, denoting a series of unusual events well-lived. I turned and walked up the hill toward my parents' house. It was time for dinner. Now for the backstory. All right. Built in 1915, Briarcliff Estate was located in the Morningside section of Pittsburgh's East End. Its name was derived from the cliff upon which Frosch's imposing stone residence stood. The house was surrounded by three acres of land, carefully curated. Take a breath, man. You're all good. All right. Yeah, we're okay. Okay. You're fine. It's it's good. You did a great job reading the Burns story, by the way. Okay, thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, More dramatic for sure. Okay. We'll do this. We'll do this again. You're There's good. a lot of hard words in here that I Yeah, it's just more informational, yeah. so I get it. Yeah. All right. We'll try this again. No worries, bro. Here we go. Built in 1915, Briarcliff Estate was located in the Morningside section of Pittsburgh's East End. Its name was derived from the cliff upon which Frosch's imposing stone residence stood. The house was surrounded by three acres of land. Carefully curated gardens, a stable, and a picnic area contributed to the property's unusual beauty. By virtue of natural formation, one tract of land was isolated from the rest. It was here that Frosch placed his beloved little house. From birth, she was cradled in the shadow of a cliff to one side, which served to keep her cool during the summer months. 
To the other side was a lush ravine. In front, and some 15 feet from her front door, was a Dutch elm tree and stone bench. 15 feet beyond that, a man-made waterfall blended in with a sloping hillside that was covered in ivory. Whether the little house was a part of Frosch's elaborate plans or a latent addition, once he set about to have her built, his intentions were clear. The little house was to be a special gathering spot. From the outside, it would have a rustic cabin appearance. On the inside, she would be, be appointed with glass-fronted tea cupboards, a cast-iron pot-belly stove, tables and chairs, and a polished wood floor. Adding to her unique character were a series of small oil paintings depicting hunting scenes. They extended around the top of the walls just beneath the cabin's A-framed roof line. Though the little house consisted of only one room, it was ample in size and capable of accommodating up to 12 visitors. Other estates were located in close proximity to Briar Cliff. Frosch's prominent standing in the community as an accomplished landscape architect made it likely that members of the Mellon, Frick, Hillman, or Carnegie families visited from time to time to enjoy a cup of tea in the little house. Frosch sold Briarcliff in 1920. Its ownership transferred three times before my parents purchased it in the 1950s. By then, much of the grandeur that had once defined Briarcliff was lost to neglect. Yet traces of the past endured. During their first spring of residency, my mother and father were greeted by daffodils, tulips, peonies, rhododendron, and rose bushes that bloomed in abundance. Many of these plants were straining to be recognized among the weeds, thickets, and wild sumac trees that grew around them. Two stray horses also appeared and began grazing on the front lawn. The secluded location of the little house, which had made her so special, ironically consigned her to the status of a recluse. The Morningside neighborhood in which Briarcliff was located had also transformed into in the ensuing decades going from a semi-rural area into a vibrant middle-class community. The fact that the home sat well back from the main street served to preserve its semblance of privacy. My father obsessed over old pictures of Briarcliff. He was determined to restore the estate to its former glory. For months, he spent countless hours thrashing through the thickets, sawing down trees, rebuilding stone walls, tilling and reviving the landscape. The stables were beyond repair, but the little house remained in surprisingly good shape, save for some vandalism, which had left her without glass in the tea cupboards and windows. Her floors were swept, cobwebs eliminated, and old furniture thrown out. By June of the year that they had moved in, the little house would once more play host to a special gathering, my brother's first birthday party. All right. Wow. Well, where to begin off of that, man? Um, so that's your childhood home? That's my childhood home. And uh, I actually lived in that house uh, from birth until I finally moved out in, uh, when I was about 22 years old. Wow, okay, that's longer than I thought then. Yeah, my mother remained there all the way up into the 90s. And um, it was a, um, it, from the story itself, you can, you can understand its yeah, uniqueness. Yeah, definitely. But 
But as we had talked about in my previous uh, podcasts, yeah. um, when you are when you are writing, um, especially when you're writing about true things, uh, you you spend a lot of time on the internet mm-hmm. and doing a lot of research. So, of course, um, the Briarcliff Estate uh, was uh, conceived by some really brilliant and well-known architects and architects and architect, um, landscape architect. As the story talks about, Frosch was a landscape architect. He had come actually from Germany. He was, um, he was a staunch German. Okay. And he had a reputation in Germany as the head gardener in uh, what was called the Royal Gardens of, uh, of um, Koblenz which is on the Rhine River, apparently in the southwest Germany. And it has its own history, but these gardens were magnificent. You know, if you see pictures Damn. of them, they're just so elaborate and so beautiful. Damn. And he ends up coming to uh, Pittsburgh uh, at the beginning of the, the 20th century, like 1905 or so. Wow. And he's almost immediately appointed to uh, a position of the gardener for the city of Pittsburgh. Wow. Uh, and this guy uh, was so well accomplished. Um, he was first assigned on a temporary basis, and then I believe he, he stayed on for many years. And um, when you look around the city or whatever, he, he is the guy that designed Friendship Park, Holiday Park, and Highland Park. I had no idea about this. Yeah, this is seriously. This is like, yes. That's crazy, man. So, so that's the guy that comes here to, uh, to Pittsburgh, and he. Yeah. He sees this property where he buys it and he can envision what he wants to build there. And he builds Briar Cliff and, um, and he, it's on a cliff, obviously. So, so he, he, it's all stone. He, quarried, he has the stone quarried and everything else. But he also wants to get um, uh, the, um, the finest architects that he can find or the finest architect that he can find at the time mm-hmm. to help him build this. He builds it in a, a French chalet style and he employs Hornbossel and Lee to design this uh, house, to design Briarcliff. Now Lee was the primary architect on this. Hornbossel, everybody kind of knows in Pittsburgh because he, he is wow. kind of like the god, he was the god of his time as an architect. <clears throat> in fact, he as I looked up in the in my uh, research on him, he, he they called him um, the home perfect. He was the perfect man. That's what he was. He was as oh. far as in the architectural circles, and he was he was world renowned. And he um, among the things that he built here in Pittsburgh, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he he designed Carnegie Mellon's uh, campus, and ultimately became. Uh, the um, head of the architecture department at Carnegie Mellon. But he also built and designed, well, he actually designed Road of Sholem, Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall. And um, he and Lee, who built Briarcliff, uh, did the city county building together. Uh, so this gives you an idea of the Definitely. level of, of architecture. Now, Lee himself, um, he built a lot of hospitals in the area, schools. And what I was really interested, what was really interesting about this guy Lee, um, was that he um, he had a house, his own house, was where the Cathedral of Learning is today. Okay. So they tore his house down to build the Cathedral of Learning. 
Um, and and he also, you know, he he was um, as I mentioned earlier, he and uh, Hornbostel built or designed the city county building here in Pittsburgh. So it's a this house, you know, had um, so much in it, man. So much into yeah. it, literally infused. Provence that yeah. was, you know, unbelievable, right? Right. Because right. here are all these guys. So this guy's from, uh, you know, Coblenz, and these guys are well, you know, worldwide known architect. Uh, Hornbostel and Lee was a, was known around the tri-state area. He built so many things, or designed so many things around around this area. So, so they built this house, mm -hmm. and uh, they built it. I looked it up for twelve thousand dollars back then, and I uh, had it built for twelve thousand dollars. And in today's dollars, it was it would still be a buy because it's three hundred nine thousand dollars was what it would translate into into today's dollars. Um, well, hey, in comparison, that's not too bad. Yeah, so, in comparison, it, it is not too bad. And um, it, so I grew up there. That's amazing, man. And. Um, it, it it was an it was a very much of an isolated area. It was also a very um, very interesting way to go because my my father he saw this house. They actually bought it in 1950. He saw the house. He fell instantly in love. He was a Hungarian immigrant. Mm -hmm. When he saw the house, he knew immediately it would look like a chateau. For and sure, he wanted this thing. And my mother, who was an American born, okay. Uh, was not all that jazzed with the idea of moving there. Really? <laughs> and um, That's funny. so she, he took, he, he, you know, he bought the house and, um, and they, they didn't, they didn't spend a whole lot of money on it back then because he was sure. a GI and he got a GI loan and he bought the, I don't know if he spent $10,000 for it, whatever, he buys this house. And, it's you amazing know, that it was so cheap. Well, in those days, $10,000, 1950, yeah, I mean it's still a lot of money. But the place but was not... in, it needed a lot of repair. Okay. It needed a lot of repair, and there, there were there were other um, histories that went on about this house that were really kind of fascinating because right. because this Frosch, he was such a heavy duty German. Okay. He was, he really uh, was a believer. Like when World War when World War uh, One breaks out. This guy goes out on his front lawn and he puts up a German flag. Okay. And they burn it down. They burn the flag down. I can imagine. Okay? Yeah. Uh, and he's forced to flee, basically. And the, even though it says, you know, he sold the house or whatever. And mm -hmm. so the flagpole was charred. We had the flagpole that had, had the. That's so burned. interesting, man. And so he's gone, and then a series of other people move in along yeah. the way, including Mayor Babcock. Of Pittsburgh lived in that house. Wow! And so then we end up in this house. But by this time, as the story in the backdrop it mm -hmm. tells you, it's it's in terrible repair. Okay. Um, uh, a disrepair, and um, he takes he, my father takes it upon himself, you know, that he's going to restore this thing. And he's he, he was a tough Hungarian. He was a very industrious guy. Sure. And in the summer times, I mean, I could see him in a uh, in one of these uh, tank tops out there, like like old <laughs> you know, school kid, wife beater tank tops. <laughs> he's out there, and he's mowing the lawns, and he's doing everything there. So, 
Well, hey, man, I mean, I, I'm interested because you're, you know, I believe you're such a product of your environment. So like growing up in that house with that rich history and seeing your dad and his old school work ethic just kind of put it together, that had to seep into you, right? Well, it was, it was not only did it seep in, but it was uh, drilled in. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> because you have, you have this house that has all these grounds on it. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, it wasn't like it, it sat in the middle of all these grounds. It, it literally had a hill side that went down into the back. Um, so the house sat up on the main street, which was Chislet Street. Mm -hmm. And then it would actually, it had a pathway that curved all the way down to an area that was a ravine, as they talk about in the story, mm -hmm. that was actually going to become Heth's Run Boulevard. It never happened. But that mm -hmm. it would go all the way down into the back. And you could, if you went down into this ravine, you could actually walk over to the, to the zoo. All right. Wow. So some, there were some nights when I literally could sit uh, out back and we could hear the lions roaring from the zoo. That's how close that's, we were. That's like novelistic almost. I yeah, mean, it, it was it was it was it was pretty wild. But you know, we've talked so much about um, progressions of my life and yeah. to my work life. Right. And this was this was undoubtedly. Um, it all starts from from the beginning, right? All starts from the beginning. So even as a as a young kid, you know, five six years old, uh, I can imagine a place like this you had beds with flowers all over the place yeah and um so i, I learned how to weed okay. i was i mean my father would take me back in the back my brother was stuck in some other area mm -hmm. and working and uh, he was four years older so you know he had more responsibility <laughs> but i would be stuck in these areas you know other kids might be playing whatever i was pulling weeds out and and preparing beds, you know, yeah. for flowers. So you had no choice. You learned how to do that. Shit. Oh, I had. A, I, I still do to this day. Absolutely. I have a, a grip uh, that is like almost like a vice, and it comes I've, from I've pulling noticed. all those weeds all that <laughs> all that time. And 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 he also um, he um, he had an area was a half a half an acre in which he planted, which were his absolute beloved and prized dahlias. So he would grow a half an acre of dahlias and the size of these plants and the flower heads of these plants were massive. They were the most gorgeous flowers you ever laid eyes on and, you know, hundreds of them. Yeah. Well, when you have dahlias, if you're a real, uh, you know, real, I don't know, connoisseur or whatever you call it. Yeah. But, uh, the love of this, you have to dig them up every year. Right. Okay, so my brother and I would have to go up there and at the end of the season, in the fall, like, you know, it's November now, we be up there, we go all over to all the different uh, uh, grocery stores and everything else and gather up boxes from every, everywhere we possibly could, bring all these boxes back, and then go up there with shovels, and it didn't matter what the hell the weather was. Of course not. Cold as shit. Yeah. Crazy. You're up there and you're digging out these dahlia bulbs, which have multiplied, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, so you have to shake off the dirt and everything else, and you have to place them in these. You had to put a, a bed of leaves, and then you had to put the 
Now you see. That's fascinating to me. This, this days and days and days of work. Like I bet, this. yeah. And then it had to be stored in a cool, dry area. So they had go, go through that. You know, it was like like closing up on a farm for the winter. Mm-hmm. You put these things in, and then in the spring, he would pull them out, and there'd be a giant stone wall in front of him because the whole place was stone, and uh, he would separate them. So, so we started out with you know two hundred. Of these bugs, we have four hundred of these bugs. That's amazing. You because know, he's separate, and that's minimal. Right. So then dahlias would be everywhere, but we have to go back up there and dig all these holes and prepare the the areas to put the dahlias back in. So it was a cycle, and um, so for a city kid growing up like that, mm-hmm. um, it's just not uh, anything that most people would experience unless you lived like on a farm yeah that's just it's totally not normal yeah especially for the city especially in morningside pittsburgh yes. yeah that's e- east end pittsburgh right morningside east end of Port- pittsburgh and so then the little house yeah uh you know we, we would deal with the little house the little house but then at, at the age of 13 uh my when my brother turned 13 years old my father you know, you you can get people to do certain things. He was the, my father was a smart guy. He was kind of he knew how to motivate you either by the rod or by reward. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> in this case, he 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 gives the cabin, the little house. He gives it he gives it over to my brother. Okay, that's that's my brother's little house. Okay, and the psychological aspect. Well, we're going to take care of it now. Right, mm-hmm. we go down there and we're going to clean it out. We're going to take care of it after all. It's his house, mm-hmm. so we would go down there, you know. And over the years, we were little kids, and say he's thirteen, so I was nine. I was already able to do a lot of different things. So we'd go down there, we clean up the little house, and we play in there, and we do stuff, and we shoot, shoot BB guns out of the back of it, everything else. And then our friends, uh, in fact, one of our friends here in town. Uh, who grew up? He grew up and was a fairly had a fairly large and uh, construction company, Chambers Construction Company. Paul Chambers. He was part of the clan that would go in there with with us, and we would, you know, he built the barbecue pit. Paul Chambers built the barbecue pit. There you go. That was outside of the little house, and that's okay. where we in the made story, hot dogs yeah. and hamburgers and everything on that barbecue pit. Interesting. And uh, so, so the work ethic that was instilled in me and in my brother, definitely uh, over those years, was, was crazy. Even my brother, as he got older and became an attorney here in town, would chop his own firewood. I love it. In in the back of his house, in uh, Lebanon. I love it. He would chop his own firewood. You guys are the real deal. So that's how it happens. So, for us, I think you know, as 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 things went on. Um, there was a toughness to us um, in terms of, of just physicalness, you know, just physical. We were physical guys. I mean, that's hard work, man. I mean, I'm a trainer, but like going out and gardening for a day is totally different than any workout you'll ever do. It's it develops a strength and just a personality like none other. So I totally, I totally get it. There was at that house an avalanche, you know, because it sat on a cliff. Yeah. And so one part of that cliff gave way and fell down into the back. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we'd go down this big, long road. Down sure, the back sure. And went down into the back and covered part of the road. 
And we had two old Sears wheelbarrows. And we had Maddox, and, you know, and shovels and, and um, sledgehammers. And, you know, normally in a case like that, some people would leave it there. Some people would have to bring in like a, you know, backhoe or something to clean that thing out. My father decides that my brother and I are going to clean that thing up. Wow. So at that time, I'd say he was probably 15. I was 11. <laughs> and maybe he was 16. Maybe sure. I was 12. But we were young. Yeah. And we would go down there with these wheelbarrows every single day throughout the summer like a rock pile. Wow. And break this thing. It was shale. A lot of it was shale. We'd break it up, put it in these wheelbarrows, and we would dump it. And um, my brother ends up building a wall in the, in the, in the back of, uh, of the house uh, with some of the shale. It's probably still, I mean, there would be semblance of it. If you could get back down there, you would probably find some of it. But to think that he built this wall, which was probably about uh, two and a half feet high, okay. two feet high, and God only knows how many yards long. I mean, it wasn't, it wouldn't be the size of a football field, but I'd say, you know, maybe th three quarters of a football field. Close enough, long. yeah. He built this by hand. At so, 15? At 15, I feel I feel old. so soft. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and the two of us are down there. Now he built most of that himself, but but that was kind of the work ethic we had. Definitely. And that carried over. You know, naturally that carried over. It would have to. So no matter what we were encountered, it, it the, the 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 crazy part about it would be that maybe you became overly convinced you could do the impossible definitely you're yeah. doing all this crazy stuff so the story as it uh, talks about here in the last time we were together we talked about um you know working in the produce yards. so working in the produce yards was not really all that unusual when you think about it for my brother and me not because at all. we were like laborers be, sure. we were laborers from young kids sure you know and what's even crazier zach is we were laborers uh from a middle class Jewish family living in a transitional neighborhood that was had some Jews in it, but slowly but surely was becoming more Roman Catholic and um, uh, uh, more and more Roman Catholic and Irish Catholic. Wow. So we had to learn how to fight too. Definitely, I was because we were say the only that. kids in the neighborhood. You know, we were some of the only kids in the neighborhood, and we were so we we not only were strong, but we also had to learn to fight. And many of these guys that we fought with when we were kids, we became friends with as adult. You know, and that's usually how it happens. Yeah, right? you see these guys on the street, you talk to them, and it's like, sure, okay. But when we were kids, yeah, uh, we we learned how to fight. That's where we learned how to fight. And um, yeah, way more hardcore of an upbringing than I have had imagined. Honestly, yeah, it's there's you. there's been changes along the way. So when I <laughs> when I'm telling you uh, the that's, story of going uh, in to cool, catch them in my last. Uh, yeah. podcast with you yeah um it's so funny man it's going from the produce shorts and then i am at ketchum i'm when i'm sitting in this story and i'm saying i'm staring at the wall and my mother called me and told me they burned a little house down i am literally now i have been hired by ketchum i am an account executive working on the ppg business 
and I'm a young guy, mm-hmm. you know, 22 years old or so. And and she calls me and tells me this has happened. And um, so I was already, I was already in the work world. I was already an account executive. And when I'm talking about standing on that, uh, standing and looking down at the firemen, uh, taking away some of the debris from the yeah. from the fire, yeah. uh, it left such a um, indelible impression on me because I was actually you would have to have seen this whole estate and seen everything to really appreciate what I'm telling you. I but wish I could. At one portion where I'm where I'm standing and looking down 400 feet up, I am literally standing. On a stone bench, stone—I mean, a stone uh, table, stone table. Insane. They had stone benches around it. Standing on that table, looking down, and that table was more oh, good two and a half inches thick, solid uh, stone wow. table. And that table is with—it made its way. It's—it's it's now in Mount Lebanon right now. It's at my brother's house. But, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's there. But I, I stood on that. I stood on that and looked down, and I knew that when I saw that happen, it was it was so sad because whoever burned that down, wherever he or she is, it's most likely a he. For sure. <laughs> um, and it may have been, as the story says, a a spur of the moment action on his part, but he has no idea what he burned down. Right. There's no clue what he burned down. Right. And um, the or, king, or is, does he? No, he doesn't. No, no one would. But yeah. but the Mellon Estate and the King Estate were right across the way. I I mean, so you and the, and those buildings are still there. So you could still all three of these buildings are still there. So people yeah. could actually see them. Uh, but to oh, say but, yeah. that the Mellons visited or the Kings visited it was not right. Not a stretch by anyone's imagination. You mm-hmm. could go down there and they would have tea in there. It was an unusual place to go and do that. And and this person burned it down. Yeah. And um, I knew at that point as I stood there that so much was changing now that this was what adulthood was. This was, you know, it would now have to live in my mind and I would, uh, I couldn't reconstruct anything anymore. So I, I when I was put it, pulling this together, put it all together, I, I, I called my brother. I was like, hey, you know what? Yeah, pictures of the little house. And, mm. um, but I thought for sure he would. And um, as I look back in old pictures from the, from the uh, family pictures from the 50s and 60s, I could not find that, that little house. And he only oh, could, as strange as it seemed, he could only find a Polaroid picture of it. Wow. Which he sent me, and which is in, you know, in the story. Yeah, I saw it. Um, and then when I went back to visit the estate, you know, it's still there, and I went back to visit. But the, the owners of it now, um, you know, they just didn't, I, I, I think it was just a changing of the time. They made their own changes to it. It has a different look to, inside now, which is not to be expected. Some some of the things, you know, were, were big improvements and, mm-hmm. and some, you know, just were like, it felt weird because they changed the, the look of the thing. Yeah. But, but walking down in the back anymore, I, could, I, I couldn't, the roadway 
had all overgrown already at this point. It was like cut off. It wasn't, so it just doesn't even exist. It, it doesn't even exist the way. It all exists in my mind. It probably exists in my brother's mind. Right. And it's the same way. Maybe even more vivid than his because he was older. But um, uh, going back down and looking at where the little house was, it's as though it was never there. Spooky. But I turned and the elm tree's gone. Yeah. Some of the bricks from the barbecue are still kind of scattered around. The uh, the ravine, though, that's talked about is there. It's still okay. there. And it was made of toughest stone from the ocean. So it it's it's all there. It's wild. Just the way that it was. Wow. And when my father and mother moved in there, that actually had a valve. You could turn on and the waterfall would come down. He turned the... He turned the valve, and it was so old that the pipes burst in the in the uh, ground, and there was they were flooding down the down the hillside. So he had to turn it on. Never that thing never worked again. It was never it was never turned on again. Jeez. So everything that I you know, it's it, um, circumstances build upon themselves. Yeah. Your um, work ethic and everything. Uh, builds upon itself and yet you know it wasn't all I, I mean you can imagine me at, at say 14 years old I, it wasn't like I was thrilled that I would be spending my summers cutting trees or doing I mean of course not but that's but that's what I did there's a satisfaction you probably got from it though when it was done when it, it was, was always yeah, gorgeous right always very gorgeous. so you always had that association from a young age of hard work and incredible results then right you know seeing your yes. father's field of flowers that was magnificent you're associating with all that work then right um t to a certain extent because it was still his yeah that's interesting it's it a was a great question you asked it yeah. was his so even though we did the work yeah it was he his he still garden. claimed ownership of the garden oh, yeah, yeah of was, course he's a tough of course hungarian european uh, yeah, I can imagine, man. So he he so for I think that probably plays a big role in the way I look at things today and my own accomplishments. Uh -huh. um, and I actually, uh, you know, have when I do something, it's usually just me. I'm kind of a loner in some of these things. Sure, uh, it's not that I don't want to share. Well, writers usually are, but it's it's my craftsmanship. Yeah, and so when it's done. You know, there's no greater feel. And I, I can't tell you, Zach, that is such a magnificent question you asked about the feeling or that, or mm -hmm. not question, but the statement you made. Mm -hmm. Because a true creative, which I, I count myself among those guys, because all these years and so many of the projects I've been involved in, the sense of satisfaction that you uh, get when you're finished with something and looking at it like you're talking about, looking yeah. at a garden filled with the most magnificent flowers in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a high. Definitely. Right? It's, Absolutely. It, and, and you become you can become a junkie yeah. on that uh, stuff. Yes, you can. Uh, to the extent that you're always looking for that next high and that next thing that you want to do and build. And that's what drives me in my job and what drives me in everything I write okay. is I want to see... You get to a point where you're, it's not so much that you want to see if you can do something better. I mean, that's great. If you do, that's, that's a high. That's the ultimate, right? yeah, that's yeah. Like the ultimate high. Yeah. But if you can um, match right what you did, right. or if you can 
match it in your mind, but it has some nuance of difference to it that you can say, yes. Sure. You know, that was, that was a great thing. So, so even when I'm writing, and when most people are writing, I would think, especially if we were striving to be a writer, the words themselves, the meaning of certain words, uh, you could sit sometimes for a long time, for a long time, and just be no, that's not the right word. I don't know what the right word is. You can Google it. You can do. You can you know look for synonyms and antonyms, whatever. But when you find that word, and it could be buried in the middle of the writing that you're doing. But if you if it, a good, I believe that a good writer it will bug them till they find that word and they pop it in there and that that moment they feel like it made all the difference in how that section reads and to the to the reader it might not of course <laughs> that's know? the pain of being a true artist then right so that's like painting with wrong colors if you write with wrong words yeah so and being a uh, being a creative guy you know like yourself did um just living in that environment that had to influence that right because it sounds very like novelistic not to overuse that word again but uh it sounds like just a very rich artistic environment that you could take in as a child and not even be fully aware of it i i think that that again on your part is a really great observation because we've talked about weeding and putting flowers in and yeah. those sorts of things but he was not a single dimensional man my father he was a multi-dimensional guy uh he was a furrier and he he knew how to, you know, he learned how to make furs and he became a very successful guy in his time. Um, but he had a great, uh, he had a great thirst for knowledge. Mm -hmm. And just like I play with these uh, stories, he played with a lot of other things. So he, he was a craftsman. He could, he could, he had no carpentry knowledge or anything, but he would go in and tear a room apart and start rebuilding it. Of course, dragging us along with him. My, of course. Father, my, my brother learned how to use tools and everything much better than I did, but um, but we were in that too. All right. Or he had a train collection, the likes of which uh, television stations would come out and take really movies of it. Yeah, incredible. He had he had. Uh, I love that. I love that. A train that. station, a train uh, setup room that was huge and all you know waterfalls and everything, built by hand with paper mache by him. I love this. So uh, furrier, gardener, carpenter, plumber, uh, he was a cook, and he also did these, these trains. And so yes, it was a crazy rich environment. Yeah. Crazy rich environment. But it was also a tough environment, a very tough environment. He was, he, was, he gave no sway. Yeah. You know, he was an Eastern European guy, and sure. we were brought up like Eastern Europeans. For sure. So if we did something, that he didn't like, and we did, you know, we broke the rules. We got the belt. There was no... Oh, yeah, I would. I have no trouble believing that, man. So we had uh, a tough... All of our friends thought that our, our growing up was an extremely tough environment. Um, but we learned discipline, obviously. We, we work special out of the creative things. Yeah. And uh, yes, it has influenced me a it, lot. It has to, right? Yeah, it, it, it has influenced me. I don't look at something and say, I always look at something and say, we can do it. We'll figure out a way to get it done. Of 
for because he that was his his thing we're we will figure out a way of getting it done and and we did it was pretty crazy was your mom a balance to him or was she similar um she was an extremely bright woman uh she did go to college she was a cum laude graduate of Pitt. yeah she's a school teacher um and yeah Interesting. You know, and and the funny thing about both of them, maybe a rest in peace, is what's on their tombstone. What is so that? on his tombstone, it it's a unique man. On her tombstone, he's kind to all. Wow, that's so sweet. So she yeah. did balance him. Absolutely. She was. Everyone loved her. She was. She was way more. Um, yeah, she was way more balanced. <laughs> than he was and she balanced him as best as she could that's what women usually do to us, cra us crazy dudes yeah yeah as best as she could of course you know he spoke with an accent he was he was very conscious i think of all those sorts of things but he was a brilliant man read encyclopedia britannica read time magazine like every mm -hmm. day before he went and did whatever the hell he was doing so he was not a, he was not uh, he was a very intelligent guy. I'm sure, yeah. Very intelligent guy. But, um, but, uh, and so, so he, he, he drilled in the two of us mm -hmm. uh, a work ethic that endures today. At my age right now, I sit here, I, I just keep wondering what's going to be next. What can I do next? What am I going to create next? Yeah, like doing this crazy podcast with this crazy oh, dude, I love, right? I love, <laughs> I love doing this podcast. I, lo I love the idea. I, I love this, man. I love this story. I think it's your most creative story. It's cool to see you take, you know, metaphor and play with. I love how you don't really know it's a house till about the end of the story, like things like that. I, li I like seeing you go into more creative avenues. So this is a very uh, satisfying episode for me and just just hearing you read it more dramatically and everything was awesome. And I think this story definitely, you can tell it has a deep emotional connection for you yeah. because that's how you can pen it that rich. You yeah. Know? And, I, and I think that it, um, it was, a, it was a different, uh, sway of, um, style. Yeah. As you point out. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even working on one right now. I'm not going to tell you about it, but I'm working Boom. on it. Sweet. And, um, we've got, we got a lot of other ones too. So, uh, it's always great to sit and talk with you. Absolutely, man. So uh, before we go, I just want to wrap up. What does this story like mean to you? If you could summarize, you know, I kind of got the, you know, when you were talking about uh, watching the firemen take, take the stuff away and like kind of watching it burn down, you were transitioning into this world of like real life. That was also like a baptism by fire, if you will, pardon like the, the use of the, metaphor there but uh like into the real world like you couldn't go back home quote unquote even if you wanted to there right so i feel like this is a uh it can either be seen as a transitional story or just a nostalgic one um i think as i you raise that question i i think that a lot of us today live in the moment yeah and and this pandemic hasn't helped that but we Surely. all live in the moment yeah and um there are so many things that get us to this moment and we as we get older we tend to forget about that and so this story what it means to me is there's a there's a wholeness to our lives and that sometimes we have to just stop and go back and in, 
and look at those things and appreciate them that got us where we are today mm -hmm. and not always be looking at what's happening around us right now and you know I mean you can't you, you pick up your phone you're you're you know our whole lives revolve around a phone right now it seems and of course and um, texting and emailing and watching you know on demand you know all those things and and we're so wrapped up in what's going on now that being able to just take a moment and reflect back. Uh, so this, this, um, this means to me uh, a marker in, in uh, my life, and there are markers in everyone's life that um, really served to build your character. And the Little House uh, was always a, a, ra a, um, a rallying point, even for our friends and everything. You know, we would always, we'd go sled riding, we'd run to the Little House. We, we were working in the backyard and sometimes our friends would stop by and we'd go to the Little House. If we had uh, high school graduation parties, we're at the Little House, yeah. you know? So, so the little house faded off into the distance, um, but the memory of the little house, the fact that you know we would go there and shoot BB guns out of the back of it and do all the things that we did, um, was a was a uh, a point mm -hmm. that everyone has. There's there's some place when you're a kid that you used to always go there, you know, and you'd hang out there. Yeah, and um, that's my so. It means, uh, it's, it, it means a, a lot in terms of a richness. Definitely. It's sad that it's gone, but I had it. I lived there. I touched it. I was in it. I played it. I did everything in there. Yeah. And, um, and I'm sorry it's gone, but I'm so glad it existed to begin with. It belongs to another time, right? It belongs to another time. My man. Well, until next time, sir. Okay. What are we doing next, by the way? What do you think? Well, we have we have uh, a number of other things we can turn to. Um, yeah. what can, what I'll, can... I'll convene with you. Let's do it. And I'll show you some of the, some of the other stories we can look at. That sweet. Um, there's uh, there's some good ones, and there's one coming. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's 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 in its. I won't call it. It's in its infancy. It's in its its uh, maturation rate. Okay. It's right Interesting. there. It's All getting right. there. Great. And All it's right. actually in this, it's, it's part, you know, as we've talked about um, the produce shards and everything else. Yeah. It, it actually is in that series. Uh, after working with you and looking at these two uh, stories, there's a gap and I'm filling that gap. Okay. I love it. Well, everyone out there in podcast land, we'll just have to end on that cliffhanger then. We'll wait okay. for it. We'll Thanks, man. Yeah, that isn't next, but we'll, you we'll yeah. figure out what's next. Yeah, next. we'll figure out what's next. I okay. love doing this, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. I You're the man. You. I know you do, brother. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome, dude.